Hey, podcast world. Welcome to another edition of FNO InsureTech. This is one of those times where I am here all by myself because my cohorts, my partners in crime, are out on vacation enjoying the world at large while I'm sitting here strapped to my desk, getting it done one day at a time. On today's exciting episode, we move back into the corporate venture capital world with a guest who I am so excited to have because he's really, though very uh, humble guy, one of the honest-to-goodness leaders and superstars in the corporate venture capital world, and that's Dan Reed, Managing Director at AmFam Ventures or American Family Ventures out of Madison, Wisconsin. Dan um, had a really interesting path to where he got to and where he is today. AmFam Ventures was founded, uh, I think, in 2013. So in the the insurance carrier-supported CVC world, that's makes them kind of an old-timer of sorts or towards that end. And... And you'll hear that reflected in our interview today, that he has a lot of knowledge and know-how and insight that he's gained through being involved in many uh, important acquisitions over time and some remarkable exits. Um, The leader of that is probably the exit that you've heard about is the ring, which you may have at your very front door. And Ampam Ventures was an early investor in that. Uh, rocket and uh, saw it all the way through to the end. But they're they're also invested in many other names that you you may know, including Hover, who's a company that we use all the time in our work and in our process at 470. And they had the insight to to see that. But uh, in our interview, we'll talk about what it means to do this work, how do you do it, and the challenges thereof. So without further ado, and all by myself, let's get to our interview with Dan Reed, Managing Director at AmFam Ventures. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for being with us today. We have Dan Reed with us, who's the Managing Director, is that right, at American Family Ventures? That's right. What does that mean, Managing Director? Uh, it means I both manage and direct. <laughs> Two roles. It, 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 yeah, it is. It, right, it, uh-huh. it, no, it essentially means that uh, it just reflects the fact that that I was uh, here at the start, and I've been leading the team uh, ever since we got organized in 2013. Uh-huh. Cool. So, American Family Ventures, also known as AmFam Ventures, correct? Correct. Can you give us a? A couple of minutes on what the heck that is and how it came to be and what you guys do. Sure. We are uh, the direct venture capital uh, group at American Family Insurance. And what we do is for the past seven years now, we invest uh, in early stage startups that are in and around the insurance industry. So typically we, we invest maybe half a million dollars to, to about $3 million dollars. Uh, into companies at the seed through Series B stage, and we uh, we then try to try to help them along their growth path as best we can. We're, we'll get into some of the details behind that and 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 the inner workings. But is this to help American Family Insurance 
strategically and tactically, or is this just an investment play? Where do you guys break that up? Yeah, well, that that's one of the things that's that's really changed over the years. When we started uh, back in, I guess, 2013, uh, the, the, the premise that we had was that we would seek investments that had financial potential. And, and by financial potential at the early stage startup level, what we're talking about is there's some plausible path to make 10 times our investment over the course of five to seven years. And so we, we would start with that, but then we would focus our activities on things that we thought had some sort of strategic relevance to either American family insurance or more broadly to the insurance industry uh, as a whole. And the, um, you know, the way that we, the way that we would articulate that dual mandate was that every deal that we did, when, when we wrote that first check, we, we believed it was, it was checking both boxes or, or the way mm-hmm. we actually laid it out because I'm an ex-consultant was in a two by two matrix. And so on one axis was the financial potential and the other was the sort of strategic optionality that, that it might provide. And when we, when we would write the check, we, we believed that every time we did so, we were doing so into an opportunity that was in that top right um, quadrant that met both characteristics. And part of that story and part of the rationale for doing this was, um, and this is a common way of, of thinking from a strategic investment point of view is, uh, it'd be great if the companies, as they developed, if they stayed in that, in that, uh, you know, dual benefit type scenario, but, and some have over the years, but, uh-huh. it, but it's also, it's also fine if maybe the strategic aspect doesn't really pan out, but we, you know, we have a financial return and it's certainly okay to make money as an investor, uh, but then from the, uh, from the other side of it, maybe the market might not reward what it is that the startup does over time, uh, but it provides some benefit to the organization uh, that's, that's well worth the, the price of admission. And um, when we started, there were th- you know, three, of, three of four of those quadrants where we felt like we could have a benefit. Uh, and then there was the one where you don't make money on the investment and you don't really make, <laughs> right. take advantage of right. the strategy. And interestingly, I, you know, I was very sensitive in those early days to to set the expectation that we're going to have some that end up sure. there. That's just the, na- the nature of the of the asset the, class. The law of averages. Yeah, but it, but it's actually important to have some that end up there because if you if you don't, then it's you know it's possible that you're not taking enough risk. You're not you're not being aggressive enough with this small allocation of capital relative to the overall size of the company. And, uh, you know, when I, when I would talk about that, I'd get a lot of nodding heads. And then we had a couple that, that landed in that quadrant uh-huh. and I, you know, I, I kept coming into work and they didn't take away my badge. And so it, was, <laughs> it was all good. You were still managing um, and directing. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So over time though, I mean, and that's a, I think that's a very standard way to think about investing from a corporate platform is, is you're, you're seeking both opportunities. And I've, I've heard it described by other investors as, uh, you know, that, that dual nature of, of what you're trying to do, uh, at least on the surface, leads to behavior like corporate investors bidding up the prices of, of uh, you know, certain financing rounds because they can capture some value from the strategic side. As it's played out for me, I, I don't, that's certainly not a conscious decision that we, that we make. And I, I don't know if anyone makes that, makes that decision consciously. And in fact, the, the way that we think about the strategic side of what it is that we do relative to the financial side has, has evolved fairly considerably over the years. Now, the way that we tell the story is not so much with the quadrants, which although there is a certain elegance to the framework, I think, but we, we talk about how every 
in, investor in order to in order to get returns that outperform the you know the, the peer set, however you define it. In our, in our case, we define it as you know, all early stage venture capital. You have to have a few things going for you. I mean, the, the first thing you have to be able to do is is to be able to you know, source and and make a make a case for yourself to uh, you know, attractive investment opportunities that you're right. the right investor. Uh, yeah, because you're certainly company. not the only one out there. No, so so you you know they, they talk about it in the venture world. This sometimes you have to sell your money, sure. uh, which is a, a you know, an odd concept, but a real one. Uh, the other thing you have to be able to do is once you have a certain set of opportunities, enough you know enough deal flow, you have to make informed decisions. You have to be smart money. And the knock on corporate investors historically is that they may be smart on their on their category, but they're prone to you know sort of rookie mistakes when it comes to venture investing. Um, but for us, the you know, investing in spaces where we have the opportunity to be smart investors uh, by bringing some industry knowledge and some experience gained over the years now is key to the strategy. And then the last thing is every venture investor, this is like a you know venture cliche playbook 101 is they talk about it. Well, it's not, we don't just bring capital to the table. We bring a whole bunch of, of valuable additions uh, to your company at, at, at the various sure. life cycles that it will go through, whether it's. Yeah, whether it's helping source talent or helping you navigate an industry or helping yeah relationships essentially, right? Uh, or and and certain mm-hmm. know-how mm-hmm. about uh, about what it's going to take to grow the business. And I, I think all of those those three things, whether it's sourcing or evaluation or, or, or value add post investment, they lend themselves to having a strategic focus. You know, they they lend themselves. Uh, and by strategic focus, I don't mean coming from an industry perspective necessarily. I just mean having a knowledge base and having some expertise in the areas where you where you intend to invest. And it you know it, it happens that the the focus areas that we've chosen uh, and and chosen to become to become good at them, uh, you know, they, they happen to matter to the insurance industry. They happen to to matter to our our source of capital, uh, which is currently just American Family Insurance. Um, but they're not. Um, they're not at odds with financial returns, and in fact, I think they enhance the potential for financial returns in the same way that you know any expertise or any focus uh, would for for any venture capital investor. Cool. Interesting. So, um, so let's take a second and just go back um, uh, and and talk about how you, how you got here. I mean, I, uh, full disclosure, I'm a major baseball fan big time oh. and uh um but i did have to look you up <laughs> <laughs> i i wasn't familiar with the dan reed career yeah well that's a funny story actually when i met my wife 12 years ago so so what you're getting at is that i had a minor league baseball guy i played baseball in college and i played in the minor leagues with baltimore Orioles. And, uh, but my name is pretty generic. And, uh, in fact, there's, I think it's a Canadian rock star from <laughs> okay. the nineties, maybe, or I, maybe I, I think he's still active. I, I don't know if he's just from the nineties, but, uh, when, when my wife and I were introduced, it was a, a blind date and I was able to find her pretty easily because her name is Kelda. Yeah. And there was, a, you know, there not that many Keldas in the world. So it was a, it was an easy Google stalking, uh, situation for me, but she looked up Dan Reed and she found like 15 pages of, of results for, uh, for the, for the Dan, Dan Reed network. <laughs> and, uh, and then she tried Dan Reed baseball and she couldn't even find it there, but somewhere on there, there's, there's some, there's some, you know, 
medium level minor league statistics on my on my old pitching well, days. I, I have a question for you to to kind of bring it back to the the bigger point that we're talking about today. What about your baseball experience uh, helps you today? What did you learn from baseball that that helps you today? Oh, there's there. I guess there are a couple things. Um, it's funny. I never get asked this question, so I, I, I don't have a canned response on it. The, the two things that come to mind immediately, though, uh, the first is that I, what I really value in the team that we have here and, and just generally in, in teams in any context is, um, is the sort of shared spirit of mission uh, where everyone has a, a certain role to play. And it's, it's moving a little bit to, to – uh, too, too cliche to say we all play a certain position on the team. Um, but there are certain you know relative strengths that people have and you see them play out uh, in in the team setting and you know the culture that we've been been lucky to, to have here at American Family Ventures, it, it feels a lot like a sports team. It feels like uh, you know we, we are all pretty clear on what winning looks like and we all know the role that we have we have to play within it. In my case, as, as mentioned, it's you know, both managing and directing. Um, but then the uh, uh, the the other thing that I think about from the baseball days, and this this goes back to I mean this makes me think a little bit of Tiger Woods, is um, just the, the the sort of power of of real driven intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I was playing in college, uh, it. That, that team aspect was was prevalent. I, I had the chance to play at Stanford, and, and we went to the College World Series. Cool. And at one point, we were, we were ranked number one in the country, and it and it everyone had the sh- same goal, which was get to Omaha and play in the College World Series. And you know, we didn't end up winning it, but we we did get there. And people would just drive themselves toward that intention to the to the point where, you know, if you win or lose a game as as a pitcher, uh, it, it would take me a couple of days to shake it off. You know, you'd end up running the stadium stairs. You'd, you'd 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 do whatever you could to get a little bit better, both out of an accountability to yourself, but also to your team. I got to the minor leagues, and you know, you're playing so many games. I think the college season is something like 50, 60 games, uh, but the minor league season is 140, 145 games. And after a couple of years, I um, I was I won't say I was okay with losing, but I was a little bit more mentally balanced when it came to. Uh, you know, the, the sort of ups and downs of, of, of mm-hmm. professional sports. It was like, I, I expected to win and I was, I was happy when I won, but it was sort of expected. And, uh, when I, when I didn't come out on top, it would, it didn't have the same sort of catastrophic feel to it. And I, as a result, I kind of reverted to the mean and I ended, ended up ending my career by, they, they sat me down in the locker room in spring training and told me, uh, here's 200 bucks. And, this should get to back, get you back to wherever you're from, wherever that is, uh, and off you go. I'm thinking of the scene from Bull Durham, where where he brings the kid into his office and he lets him go. Yeah, you you lived that. Uh, yeah, I did, and and I remember I actually played in the league where uh, Bull Durham was fil- filmed. It was the Carolina League uh, at the time, and um, yeah, my experience with being let go was, was it forever etched. In my memory, it was three. It was three of the Orioles uh, staff members, and they sat me. And maybe it was a, it was intentionally a, a sort of three on one type yeah, thing because right, you know right. what someone's going to do. 
but they, they said, you went to college, right? And I was like, yeah, of course you drafted me out of college. Like, I said, okay, well, yeah, you had a pretty good run. Uh, so what are you going to do now? And, and like, it's one of those moments where 50 things go through your head at the same time. Probably five things go through your head at the same time, ranging from, I think what I actually said was, well, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to go get a job. I mean, I'm, I'm in here in the, in spring training in a Baltimore Oilers uniform. I didn't really have major backup plans. I, I think they were, they thought they were being considered, but actually it was almost taunting. Uh, the <laughs> That's way that terrible. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was it. I, and, um, I guess the point I was, I was, I was talking about, yeah. I, I mentioned yeah. Tiger Woods. I didn't want to leave that dangling out there. Right. That's one of the things I've always admired about him is he seemed to really care long after he logically should have, you know, he, he, he made, he made so much money so early in his career, but he was still driven by that, that desire to win. I, I think that's, that's really key. And I, and I think the, you know, tying it back to how does it, how does it play out with venture capital or startups? I, mean, I, I think that all of the, the things people say about the startup culture and the sort of respecting the hustle and, you know, you don't, you don't really know what it's like until you've, until you've done it. I think that stuff is true. And I, I think you have to have that same level of, um, you know, drive and mission and, uh, and sort of relentlessness that in order to make a, a startup successful over the, the many ups and downs that you can have that, uh, that you do to maintain an athletic career. Yeah. And, you're, you're going to win and you're going to lose. You just want to win. You just yeah. want to win more than you lose. Yeah, and you never really know what the competition is doing, and so you're always you always maintain this this edge that I think is um, it's it's quite productive for the pursuit of a, of a goal. Uh, it's probably not super healthy over the long term to the you know, the maintenance of of a of a sort of healthy spirit, I guess, but. Uh, but, you know, as long as you can sustain it it, 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 it does pay off. Well, that's interesting that you bring up the competition. I wasn't going to even particularly ask about this, but uh, the person that introduced us was Joe Kurgis at, oh, yeah. um, from, from OnRamp and Generator. Great guy. Um, yeah, Joe's one of my good friends. He's been, he's been on our podcast and very, very generous man. And um, uh, he's created an environment where... The CVC, you're C, the, he's almost helping to create a CVC community, right? Of of, and and you guys get together and you talk and you share. We had uh, Ted Stuckey on. You probably know Ted. Sure. Um, so, uh, is there a, a competition? I mean, you, or or is the marketplace just so vast that it's kind of easy to get there first with with some of these companies? Yeah, that. Uh, so I guess it's natural to think about the other corporate venture investors in the insurance space as, as the competition. I, I, I don't really think of it that way anymore, um, which is reflective of, a, of of another bit of an evolution that we've gone through here at American Family Ventures. And I, I, um, it it brings me back to sort of the concept of doing doing venture capital wrong. Um, and maybe doing it wrong from a corporate point of view. The, the first deal we ever did, we thought we were being very clever. Uh, we, we loaded the deal with a bunch of these so-called strategic terms uh, where we had an exclusivity provision. Uh, we had the you know, right of first refusal if the company were, were ever sold. I mean, this was a, a company that was going to help agents uh, 
get onto social media in a, in a compliant way. And um, it, it, I think it's very natural to approach deals in the early days from mm-hmm. that kind of corporate lens. Uh, but what we ended up doing, and, and in hindsight, we were kind of lucky that it, that it played out this way, I, I guess, because it, it, it taught only in the sense that it taught us a lesson uh, the hard way, but it was sort of early in our process. The, the company started to develop uh, solutions that were outside of the insurance industry. They, 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 I won't say they abandoned the insurance industry as a development priority, but they just, they deprioritized it. And we couldn't figure out why until it dawned on us that we had, through our clever contract, we had taken an entire industry right. off the table for them. And, and so, of course, they had they had uh, deprioritized it, right? And the solution wasn't so great for our agents anymore. We ended up switching switching partners uh, on the operating side, which was a hard lesson to learn, but but a valuable one, like I said. And to me, that that lesson it led to a whole bunch of of, of rethinking about how we were going to approach so called competition. Um, to the point where a couple of years later, we we made the conscious decision that not only are we going to uh, not exclude competitive, uh, you know, insurance carrier VC groups from certain deals, whether we're leading or participating, we were going to welcome it. And, and in some cases we were going to seek them out and, and actually bring them in because they, they offered something, yeah, they offered something that we didn't, or, um, you know, the, the, the company itself would benefit from having, um, you know, they were, they were sort of deep in insurance or wanted to sell the insurance market. And we wanted to make sure they had full leeway to do so. Uh, and so we, you know, not only did we, did we get rid of that kind of exclusivity mindset after that one deal, but we uh, almost overcorrected in the other direction. And we started creating these syndicates of uh, insurance carrier VCs. And that's lent itself to kind of our next step, which is what we're actually um uh, we're, we're formalizing that, and we're bringing in a number of other carriers into a into a, a, a new capital vehicle that expands our work beyond just American Family. Really, that's so interesting. In hopes of um, leveraging expertise from a variety of uh, very interested parties. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, going back to the kind of how we think about strategy and, and financial returns, it's. It, it, it's going to allow us to, I think, tell a differentiated story about the syndicate that we're putting together, uh, you know, to the market, and, and hopefully help position us as, as someone that you really should talk to if you're raising money around the insurance industry. It helps mm-hmm. us get smarter about the deals that we're going to do because there's, you know, there's more voices and experience uh, uh, that we can draw from, and and, it, and it, of course, having a, a, a syndicate of, of parties that are seeking this this kind of partnership with with innovative startups uh, will only help us deliver value to the startups once we once we make that investment does does um, the fact that you've had success um, with some of your invest with many of your investments does that help you make you more attractive to the startup community is that important to them I I think it is because um, well, I, at least that's the story I tell myself. I think when you're a startup and you're making the case that someone should invest in you, you're you're looking to to offer as many proof points as you can, and those proof points come in uh, 
you know, subtle and not so subtle ways. And the obvious one is what's your sales traction look like mm-hmm. and you know, what's your growth rate look like. Mm-hmm. And, and the not so subtle ones are how well does the team work together? Uh, you know, uh, how insightful are they about their own operating strategy? And I, and I think having, having some uh, track record of success on, uh, you know, delivering financial returns uh, through this investment vehicle and, uh, and, and delivering, the, the kind of operating partnerships that the that the startups uh, are seeking from an investor like us that that does help us make the case for why we, why we're the right investor for the opportunities that we're that we're most bullish about. You know, one of the reasons I ask is my uh, my son is involved. He's a founder in a startup, not in the insurance industry. They're they're providing SMS solutions to the retail industry. And it's super interesting spaces. I'm sure okay. you're, you're probably familiar with it. And they went through Y Combinator. They were accepted in Y Combinator. They went through Y Combinator. And um, at the end, as you know, you know, all the various and sundry venture capitalists come along and pitch them on investing in their company if they believe in it. And um, there was an, an enormous crowd of VCs who were interested in taking a position in their company. And it was really quite taxing on my, on my son and his co-founders how to decide who to use. It's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm interested in that part of the process and, and, and how you work with that. Uh, well, I mean that, first of all, that's a great situation for your, your son to be in that that's the sort of like definition of a good problem. Right. Um, uh, you know, I think I think there's a handful of real marquee brands in the venture capital space. Uh, you know, the 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 ones that that people with just a, a passing interest in in startups and, and entrepreneurship might know by name. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's nice to be in that position because they they can they they benefit from the brand that they've that they've built over dozens or, or more years. Uh, if you're if you're in that sort of not startup household name category, then I I think yeah your your son's probably going through or went through a, a certain calculus around you know what is it that what what even are the factors again uh, on which I should compare these these opportunities should should I be looking at the deal terms should I be looking at um, you know right. the sort of off the paper benefits that I get from these different investors and. And it, it can be tough to, uh, mm-hmm. I suppose it, it can be tough to parse out. From our point of view, we just, you know, we just want to be in the conversation. And that's, that's the sort of first objective is find a company like that and uh, get them to hear our story about what it is that we can do. Is that what it was like with Hover? Um, you know, I think the situation with Hover, so Hover you're, you're mentioning is, is uh, one of our portfolio companies. We invested in, I believe it was 2016, uh, into Hover. They they do something that's um, something that we, we really like as a strategy, which is they have uh, the insurance market as a as a core vertical, but it's not the first one. Um, they had built a business uh, on. Uh, in another industry, it was it was window and siding contractors, and and what Hover does for those of you who 
or haven't uh, you know <laughs> followed followed them that closely is uh, it's a it's smartphone application where you, you take photos of the exterior of a home and uh, using some machine learning hover stitches it together into a into an accurate 3D rendering of that home and the the applications for window and siding are are more on the sales side mm-hmm. you can, you can mm-hmm. do a quick uh, bid but then as they started started to expand into the insurance industry we we saw the application for claims adjusting and for um, and for underwriting as as quite attractive um, as I'm sure you did as well uh, in in managing the the cost of of uh, you know of adjusting a, an exterior claim in particular correct Correct. Yeah, and so for us, I don't remember the exact dynamics of, of the round that we're putting together, but I mm-hmm. do remember thinking that this is a, a great example of one that has you know, independent financial potential, um, both in terms of really the quality of the solution that they provide, but also in terms of the, they're they're building machine learning off of a proprietary uh, imagery that, that they just aren't training data sets of the exterior of every U.S. home. Uh, and so they have some defensibility uh, in their mm-hmm. in their narrative as well, and then the, the strategic implications for you know, how our company or how the industry could uh, derive a benefit from their solution were, were fairly clear to us as well. And we love the team; we we, we liked mm-hmm. the time at which we caught them, and and we've been very pleased with the with the investment ever since. Yeah, our experience with them now is uh, we've been using Hover for o- over a year and uh, in the field. And uh, and have had you know good success with. It. In fact, one of our one of the carriers that we do business with requires it as part of every claim file, which is an interesting choice that they make. But uh, it's a great product. I, I think it's you know it was obviously insightful of you guys to get behind that. But it sounds like you helped them develop some things strategically. Yes, that uh, that 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 you saw some potential in it. You know, I I really hesitate to take any credit for, for work that they did. And I, I don't think it would be just, I don't think I'm being falsely modest in saying that. I, I think that they, every time that we talk, they make more and more progress on the technical side and, and on the business side. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the, the role that we've played with them is sort of an, an insure an early insurance voice. Uh, but they've progressed within the insurance market well beyond, uh, well beyond anything that we've told them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, I mean, and I, the progress we hear about them frequently, um, not from Hover and the people we know there, but from others in the in the industry and on the carrier side who are either looking at them seriously or using them. So I, I, I think that was a great thing. Can you, um, let, let's talk for a second about the process just quickly. How do you get from um, somebody that you've never heard of, a company that you've never heard of, to investing, what what are the steps involved there? And and I mean, how do you even start? Where one of the things that we've learned, I mentioned this to you earlier, is that there's a vast landscape of insure tech companies out there. How how do you how do you sort through it? And then once you do, how do you get how do you get to investment? Yeah. So how, how do you sort through it? Uh, we're a team of twelve, and one of the goals that we've set for ourselves is to never read about a, a, a you know an insurance related or you know something within our scope uh, never read about a financing that we weren't already aware of um, and that's a that's an ambitious goal because it is a booming space 
but we you know we do that through developing some personal network by by you know doing the things that we ask uh, our our portfolio partners to do, which is just wake up thinking about this and hustle as, as much as we can over the course of the day. Um, how, how we make a decision probably is best sort of moving backwards from the end of the process back back to more of the start. The the, the way that the, the process ends is we have an investment committee. It's common to, to most investment groups um, and where we have a, a vote of uh, the more senior members of our group and it's uh, the way it the way the voting actually works is uh, we have to have a majority of the principals on the team vote yes on the deal, and then I have to vote yes on the deal, and then we sort of move it through the legal process to to get the deal executed. Prior to that investment committee discussion, we will have likely had two or three uh, discussions at our at our Monday meeting uh, about the company as someone is. Uh, you know, leading the investigation, leading the, the relationship and kind of working their way through their own question list. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll bring their findings and their, their sort of in-progress thinking about the about the uh, possibility of working together to the rest of the team. We meet every Monday and we go through sort of what's the funnel look like and what, what's happening within the portfolio. And if there are other operational things that we need to discuss, we'll, we'll discuss it there. But Mondays, are they tend to be the favorite meetings of... Uh, of the week for most of the team, because you have this pretty lively discussion about, uh, you know, what do we need to believe in order to make this deal, and and how strongly do we feel about uh, the you know the the support that we can make or the you know the facts that we can provide to make us believe uh, what we what we would need to to believe. Um, that process for us has been a bit of an evolution. It it used to be that we would. If someone would work up a deal kind of independently for for days or more likely weeks uh, and then sort of bring a fully formed recommendation to the rest of the group mm-hmm. for, for consideration. And what we found is it's just, it's just too much to, it, it's, it's almost too much to take on as a decision maker to, to, to try to ingest a, you know, 20 page memo on right. a, uh, on a team that you don't have a, a familiarity and do it live right? and do so in a making framework. And so the, the way it's evolved is, has been the deals that get done, uh, they, they tend to have informally involved some thought partnership from the, from the rest of the people on the team, particularly those who have a, have a, a you know, a specific say in whether we do the deal or not. And that kind of informal thought partnership is, has lent itself to some cohesion among the team. And I think better decisions along the way. Um, we end up with a lot of deal. I mean, this is something uh, sort of around the uh, you know, around this venture capital decision making table that I don't think is at all unique to us, but it's one that I, I don't think entrepreneurs have a lot of visibility into is um, this sort of gray areas. Uh, you know, it's not a clear no, it's not a clear yes. We, you know, we, we like the deal. There's certain aspects that, that we're, we're you know, very excited about, but there's there's others that it's not that it's not that we don't like it. It's that Maybe, maybe there, the evidence isn't there, or you know, we're not comfortable with with uh, that component of the sort of multivariate equation, which is too fancy a term here. The, the well, of, yeah, but and, the, and we, the gray ones, the gray ones are harder. They're, they're harder, and we end up in this. In this, it's not a yes, it's not a no. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing that I I always find uh, 
um, it, it just doesn't feel right when we do it, but it, it actually is the right thing to do in a way, at least from our perspective is, is we give a sort of not right now answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't the right time or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we need to see more traction or this and that. And that, that I think from a, from a founder's perspective, that feels, um, feels incomplete. It, it feels like, like the, the op, the, the, like the VC is pres- preserving the option for themselves and not sort of releasing them and sure. wild them in the right way. But really, I, I think it, at least in, in my case, it, it's intended to be respectful. It's intended to be, uh, we're not passing judgment necessarily on your, on your company. It's just, it's, it's just not, not something that we're, that we're prepared to fund right now. Well, I'm sensing that, that, um, like you used the word believe a minute ago, belief. Like you have to believe in these things that, that there's a, there, there's a gut involved in this. It's not just what the equations say. Right. Or, yeah. Is, is that true? That's it is. And, it, and you've hit on something that we've had discussions with. Uh, I think I'm, I'm at odds with the rest of my team about this, but I don't have a, a, a better way to think about it is, um, I don't like when when the team uses the term conviction about you know I, I have I have real conviction about this um, because to me you can have conviction and be completely wrong. Uh, con- conviction feels yeah. it's like a yes, f- that's true. You know, There's it, a lot of history on that. Yeah, right. It it, uh, it it and it has the essence of a feeling. You know, I, I feel very strongly about this deal, um, and I I I want to at least I, I want to try to take emotions out of it as, as best we can, but I just, I don't know that it's possible. And, I, and like I said, I don't have a counter proposal that's better than conviction. It's, um, you know, I, I think what, what team members who've been successful in their argument uh, around this to me have, have noted is that, uh, you know, my conviction is not just a, a an emotional thing. Like I can, I can have conviction and, and you know, get there in a, in a very rational way. Uh, yes, but there is that connotation that conviction had to me, at least, that that conviction is born out of uh, you know, I'm, I'm just convinced. I, I you know, I, I really want to do this deal, and I feel very strongly about it. Therefore, we should do it. And uh, you know, I, I don't really care how strongly you feel about it. it. I I care about it. You know, how much uncertainty we can take out of this thing and and uh, mm-hmm. out of this decision. And the problem mm-hmm. is, early stage venture. You, you can't take a ton of uncertainty out of it. It's it's that's just the, the nature of the asset. Correct. I bet that leads leads to some very lively um, conversation. But 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 what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep it as as systematic and um, uh, and unemotional as you can. I, I think so. I mean, we're all subject to to a, a, a long list of well known cognitive biases. And, uh, it's, it's good, I think, to step back from time to time and, and try to examine how, you know, how, how they might be affecting your advocacy of a particular deal. It, it reminds me, I, I used to be a, a I might've mentioned this uh, after grad school, I was a management consultant with uh, the Boston consulting group. And I remember I, I was working on an engagement with a client for, you know, must've been four or five months. I, I, I was spending a lot of time with this company and uh, and with the the people who were leading at the sort of mid mid level of the organization, and you know, helping them, or they were helping me think through a, a particular challenge that that they were having. And I remember the senior partner from BCG came to review my work in anticipation of presenting it to the more senior leadership of the of the company. And he, he you know he looked at it for five minutes and he said, "Well, 
um, you know, you must be too emotionally invested in this company. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? I, I, you know, how can you say that to me? I've been here, for, you know, it, 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 it was like your conclusions, your, your, your conclusions are wrong. And, and, uh, and it must be because you've, 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 you've sort of lost your perspective on this. Sure. And, and I thought, you know, how can, how can you look at what I did for five minutes? I've been here for months and tell me that I must be too emotionally invested. Like what, what if I'm actually right? And, mm-hmm. and you have no idea what you're talking about. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in hindsight, I can't remember the exact situation, but I'd be willing to bet that if I looked at it now, I'd, I would say he was probably right. But whatever. He was right. Yeah, he was probably right, but he was kind of a jerk about it. Let's talk about exiting. What? Why do you exit? And and do you have? You must have pre-determined things you're looking for in an exit. And 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 what di- what dictates the right time for an exit? Well, tell me about that. Uh, so we've had. 13 of our, of our uh, partner companies uh, be – actually, 12 have been acquired and one went public. Uh, so we, we have some experience with this. And uh, you know, to, your, to your question, what makes the right time, it, you know, the, the, the sort of, I don't know, cheeky answer is uh, it becomes available to you. I mean, it, it, when you get an attractive offer, um, as I mentioned, 12 of them have been acquisitions. Uh, you, you, you deliberate on it as a board. And if we're on the board, which is about you know half the time, uh, and then you you look at things like you know what's what's it going to what you know what do we have to believe about about this business in order for us to um, it's kind of like you re underwrite the company in a way it's a, you, sit, you sit there and you think like what what would have to what would have to happen for us to exceed this this outcome uh, from you know from that financial point of view and how do we feel about the probability of us uh, you know, achieving that and, and you know, how much more capital is it going to take to get there? I mean, you basically just sort of, you, you, you make a calculation about, is this the right time to do it? And um, every situation is a little bit different, but but the process is, is pretty much always the same. And I don't think I've been in a situation where there's been any sort of split vote. Um, it always just sort of, you know, you know, one thing that does happen, I mean, to try to say something that isn't, that isn't totally obvious is one thing that does happen is because we're focused on early stage startups, the, you know, the typical path for an early stage startup is to be what, what people call default dead, which is you're going to need to raise another round of capital in order to keep the business going because you're, you're biased toward growing the top line rather than, rather than the bottom line because, you know, at the early stage, the typical valuation methodology is a multiple on revenue, and the you know the the faster the revenue growth rate, the, the oftentimes the, the larger right. that multiple right. will be. But that leads to a situation where you occasionally have to sort of pull your head up and say, uh, okay, so are we going to be able to to raise the next round? Uh, and if so, are we going to be able to do it at a at, at you know with terms that we can be comfortable with, or is now the right time to start to introduce the possibility of some optionality uh, into that decision. And the optionality you know, will often look like a, a founder conducting a, a, a fundraising process at the same time that they're having a limited number of, of kind of strategic acquisition conversation. And the, you know, the best situation is when you end up and, and I, you know, it, 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 it definitely is a real challenge to pull off. Uh, but when you have a, a situation where you have 
you know, multiple acquisition offers is ideal. You know, sometimes you can sure. have multiple acquisition offers and some fundraising options. And I think the, you know, the one it's happened once in our portfolio, it was, it was, it was kind of fun to see. It was a company that had, that had achieved this, uh, this, you know, cash flow break even status. So they didn't actually need to raise money, but they had the opportunity to raise money and they had the opportunity to sell. So they really had three choices as to what do they mm-hmm. do next with the company. And that was a, that was a much more comfortable place to be, <laughs> but that, but, but it, but it doesn't usually play out that way. No, it, you know the the way it plays out often is, I mean that, that's the sort of happy side of it. Mm-hmm. The other way it often plays out is, uh, you know the the, and this is this is one of the things I mentioned about Hover is one of the things we liked is the, the insurance industry was kind of a secondary market for them, and which we liked about it because the, the insurance industry has a really long sales cycle. And you can just run out of gas waiting to get your Correct. customers Correct. closed. Don't um, I know? Yeah, right. And you, uh, and so you have that. You have you know, you end up in that situation uh, with some frequency where uh, you know the company's the company's fine. The, the you know the product is coming along nicely, but the sales traction isn't where you'd like it to be. And in order to feel confident about raising the next round, and and then you uh, then you're looking at you know less less fantastic outcomes, but still worthwhile to keep things going and, uh, um, you know, and to, and to find the right home for, for the business. And we've, we've had a, that happen a couple of times, uh, within our portfolio as well. And it's, it's not a bad outcome. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. it's just all, all sort of part of the spectrum of outcomes that, that happens uh, when you're trying to grow something quickly. One of your more famous exits, uh, and, and recent is ring. Yeah. Yeah, Ring was a was a really fun story to watch. We we got involved with Ring in what's probably a predictable way, but it felt it felt new to us. Where you know, you you, you do one investment in a space and you learn something about the space and then that leads to, you know, a couple more and that leads to it's like the opportunities start to present themselves once you're active within within a space and you get a little smarter about it and by the time we met Ring, I think we had we had made maybe 12 or 13 home automation investments and including running a, a home excel, a home automation accelerator uh, with Microsoft at their corporate headquarters in 2014. So we, we felt very well and we'd run a whole bunch of policyholder tests with, uh, with some of these partnerships. So we felt very well tuned up on, on what makes for a compelling home automation opportunity and, and, and maybe sort of consumer IOT in general. And we met Ring at a time when uh, they were doing about, $200,000 in sales a month. Uh, and we, we settled on a price together. And by the time we actually closed the deal, we got everything through legal. I think the Christmas season had hit or something. And, and they, uh, they had grown their sales to $2 million a month. And what I, Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing wow. over the course of just a couple of months. And they, wow. uh, okay. what I, what I really found endearing was that they honored the terms of the deal. And you know, that they, is it, endearing. It was great. And, and we ended up, uh, what felt like a fantastic bargain from the start. And then that was really just the beginning of the relationship. We, we put together a partnership with them around, um, uh, uh, you know, subsidized offering to American family policyholders with a discount on home insurance, with a discount on the device, with a, uh, deductible reimbursement plan. It was, it was, it was all pretty cool. We rolled that out uh, in the first year that we were working together, but, you know, very quickly, 
the company just kept growing and growing. And every time we would catch up with Jamie, the founder, he would tell us another. It was just delightful, you know, from an investor point of view. He'd tell us another story about, oh, yeah, you know, remember I was telling you it was $2 million a month. It's $8 million now. And we're like, oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, we'd be at a, at a lunch here in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'd look over my colleague's shoulder, and there's there's Jamie on TV with some of his first TV ads. And, you know, we're, we're taking, we're taking selfies of oh, that's our guy. And that's probably some of our money. That's, <laughs> right. You know, that's right. Being, you know, buying the TV. Ad. You know, Richard Branson came in and Kleiner Perkins and Goldman Sachs, and it just kept growing uh, until, until Amazon bought them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very lucky situation to be in. Um, and it, uh, you know, I read somewhere that every, you know, every venture capitalist that's that's made a career in venture capital has had something like that, some sort of lucky break in the first few years that allows them to keep doing it. And uh, and I, I, you know, I feel very fortunate that we met them. Sure. I'm and, and in the interest of time, we won't go into it, but I'm sure that you have experiences that are at the other end of that spectrum as well, which are in, in inevitable. Sure. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, back to that sort of initial framework that we thought about on the financial and strategic side, we've, we've had some that, you know, that the, the market didn't develop the way that they expected it to, uh, and the, the investment didn't plan out. We, we've had some where, and I, I hate to admit it, but I'm, I'm not afraid to, because we, it's been a learning process for us along the way is, you know, where our sort of value add, uh, didn't, didn't pay out the way that didn't, didn't sort of play out the way that we thought it would. And that's been, that's been embarrassing. I mean, there was one early situation where it took 16 months of, uh, sort of operating negotiations, uh, with some of our partners to, to get to an answer of no, uh, to one of our, our startup partners. And that, that wasn't good. And so, you know, you learn sure. from that and, and you try to develop better systems and, and, and you know, better ways to, to deliver against the expectations of, of your partners. And, uh, Hopefully, win more than you lose. I uh, want to touch on the what you guys did with Ring on the marketing side, and ask you if you're doing that with other stuff. I, I love the idea of working these uh, investments on, on the marketing side for American Family. I mean, obviously, they have operational impact in certain areas, particularly you know the AI and machine learning stuff that's out there and the telematic stuff. And you guys are, it seems like you're pretty well invested in that. But uh, have you had other opportunities on the marketing side beside Ring? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we, we've had, I think the count is 56 uh, portfolio companies at this point. And 32 of them have had some sort of operating partnership with, with American Family or, or, or our affiliates. That's and, terrific. Yeah, it's been, you know, and those range from small uh you know, initial programs to, in one case, American family ended up acquiring the, the whole company and it became part of, uh, the, 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 the team that's managing a digital transformation office, uh, within the, within the organization, which, which is, which is great to see. So, I mean, I, I think it's part of our, it's part of the value proposition that we sell ourselves on to, to the market, both to other investors and also to the, to the startups that we, we do really whatever we can just to help them help them grow. Um, and that, you know, really, really, obviously it starts with our own, our own colleagues in American family, but it, it doesn't really end there. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of, uh, of, um, of our companies hover is a good example that, you know, we'll, we'll help them meet other, uh, other, other carriers within the industry. 
And then I guess the other thing is, you know, from the, and we look at, we look at nearly 2000 companies a year uh, for investment and wow. for, for every, every deal that we actually do, there's probably 10 uh, that we, that will make introductions uh, into the, the operating areas of the business. So it's, um, it's, uh, we, you know, we, it, we, we see, we see if we can add value to the startup in some way, even if we don't make that investment. And, and oftentimes, uh, you know, there, there's an opportunity for partnership out, outside of the, outside of the equity vehicle that we have here. Um, I, I want to close by asking you a question about InsureTech, the phenomena. Um, I, wh- one of my, uh, friends who's, a, a a really, really smart guy in the insurance industry, he works on the claims end, said that he feels that InsureTech, that there's an InsureTech bubble, that there's just too much, too many, uh, uh, running in too many different directions that he doesn't see how it's going to do anything but pop. And as somebody who works in it every day and is d- deeply vested in in the the movement, I'll call it. How do you feel about that? How how do you look at? Are you concerned about that? You know, I've I've gone through a few different phases of thinking about that. And like like you, I think we were we were in the space before it was called insurtech, and for it was just called insurance, right? And, right. Uh, right. And we we sort of bristled at at the naming uh, of InsureTech and you know, for a couple of, it, we saw it, we saw it pop up in maybe 2015. And for a couple of years, we were really reluctant to use it. It was like, no, we were, we were here first. You know, we were here early. We, we're too cool to use the term InsureTech. We just call it insurance, <laughs> but it's so overwhelming. Right, then you go uh-huh. through like, is it spelled with an E or is it not right? But, but it's so overwhelming. <laughs> it's, so, it's so ubiquitous that you can't help but use it. Right. Um, you know, I, I'd say that, for us, both the name and the, the the sort of boom happened in 2015, and it was really in the second quarter of 2015 when, uh, if you look at the the venture funding into insurance related startups, there's this huge bolus of funding into three Benefits. three deals right. in, in Q2 right. of, of 2015, and one of them was Zenefits, which raised five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, and they they have you know quite a quite a, quite a story uh, after that, uh, but almost. I mean, almost overnight, in hindsight, we saw the nature of the pitches that we were receiving uh, in our insurance, you know, focus area uh, really changed uh, dramatically. And prior to prior to the, the, the uh, you know a lot of the press and, and a lot of the hype around benefits, the the deals that we would see with an insurance were were almost entirely geared toward making uh, you know legacy carriers more efficient in their operations. And um, after Zenefits, we started seeing more and more pitches uh, that sort of that, that that were taking the industry uh, on as a competitor rather than a uh, you know efficiency uh, efficiency aid. We, That's we started seeing pitches like, "Yeah, did you know that the insurance market's a five trillion dollar market and it's." old and fat and slow and and you know they still use fax machines and like all, all this kind of stuff that was um upstart type language right uh and i and i think a handful of companies like that have you know have really risen to prominence both in the in the you know trade press but in the popular press around uh the the idea of modernizing 
this sort of end to end of how a, how a carrier works. We, you know, but at the same time, we still see a, a, a lot of the, um, you know, I think in the in the wake of that, we see an increase now. Uh, I characterize it as like an overnight shift toward this this sort of disruptive messaging, but you know, in, I think in the wake of the disruptive messaging and the money that's been going into that, we 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 see more and more of, of companies that are focused on you know, process improvement or efficiency gain. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's it's easy to say that the the, the handful of of uh, high flying MGAs or carriers that are out there are overpriced, but what do I know? I mean, t- time will tell. And, right. Uh, and I, I I could argue both sides of it pretty strenuously. I mean the the the, the sort of you know legacy carrier perspective that uh, you know growing an insurance business is going to take a ton of capital and it's and it's hard to do is 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 valid. And the you know startup perspective and I, and I feel like I have got one foot in, in both of these camps. The startup perspective about you know being lean from the start, you know sort of being 18 years old again and, and maintaining a fitness re- regimen and, and uh, you know, it's, it's going to lead to long-term uh, competitiveness in ways that are obvious now and uh, around, you know, customer experience and, and expense manage- management and ways that aren't obvious yet mm-hmm. around uh, the sort of nimble product development and, and others. And you know, who's to say what, what what's really going to happen? It, it's going to take a lot of money. And so the concept of a, of a bubble, yeah, I, I don't know. But I think there's there's a, a lot of opportunity uh, in the space, and you know, as, as I go around talking to, to carriers who are looking to get more involved, uh, there's a there's a you know, a lot of, of, of players who um, haven't really even started to engage yet, and uh, so I you know, correct. So I, I I like the space a lot. I, obviously, we're we're still investing in it, and uh, I, and I see a, a a long future for it. The, 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 it just seems to me that, um, like you were saying about the nature of the insurance industry relative to the say other industries that are out there today, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and that's indisputable. Uh, there's a lot of efficiency opportunity and, and, and growth opportunity and distribution opportunity. The list goes on. And so, um, if you can get there fast enough, um, I think that, I mean, there's there's just big opportunities out there. Yeah, someone described it to me, a, a founder recently. He, he says that there's just inches everywhere. You you can take inches out of out of it uh, everywhere you look. And wow, and if you you know, I like that. If you don't start with those inches, then uh, you, you you set yourself up well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I I uh, am so grateful. I've <laughs> I've kept you longer than uh, I said I would. But uh, that just speaks to how intriguing you were. Well, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I just looked at my watch. But I, I enjoyed the conversation. And uh, yeah, hope to talk to you soon. Well, we appreciate having you on today. And um, have a great vacation. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks. I, I, I really appreciate it. Sure. You know, when I get to do podcasts by myself, it's actually... Um, a little easier because uh, um, I get to take it wherever my my mind wants to, and this was a great example today of having you know one of the real serious experts in the CVC field, one of the most experienced and most successful CVCs out there uh, in the ins- in the insurance space, to be able to uh, 
chat with and answer questions. And, and Dan had, you know, so many great insights and ideas to share. And, and just so you know, a very generous guy and, and a very nice guy. I really loved what he said about their Monday meetings and what it's like to go through and vet these companies and work from, like you said, they look at, I think he said 2000 companies that they look at in a year and to get down to that small number of ones that are actually going to get their investment is a challenging process, but one that they've uh, figured out and tried to remove as much of the emotion and, um, and, and look at it strategically and tactically and and make those things i also enjoyed what he had to say about about ring and how that went and i think everybody everybody in business has those situations where they've just been the right place at the right time and everything has gone well and we've all had this situation where it's been the opposite and i think the thing that makes amfam ventures stand out is that their batting average is really high and if you uh, look them up or you do some research on AmFam Ventures, you'll see that time and again, they've been very successful. And you heard the number of acquisitions and, and exits, that successful exits that they've had. It's a, it's a high number. This is a, a group to watch. And I know it's a group that's emulated. It's very interesting also to hear that they're putting together a group of um, insurance companies to, um, to invest cooperatively in the insure tech space which is a great idea. You don't see that kind of cooperation typically among insurers, but on the venture side, you do. And that's something that we've heard before from other guests that we've had on in the venture space. There's a uh, real cooperative spirit that exists among all these people. Um, anyways, I invite you to to go online and to learn as much as you can about MVM Ventures. They're they're very interesting. No matter what part of the InsureTech ecosystem you live in, they're a great story. And we thank Dan for being with us and uh, for taking the time on the day before he goes on vacation, which was uh, real generous of him. But I think it speaks to the kind of guy he is. So we thank you for being with us. And once again, we are not supported by any advertisements. So we ask that you support us by being a subscriber to our podcast, which you can do on any of your favorite podcast platforms, or you can go to fnoinsuretech.com. You can communicate with us there as well as subscribe to our podcast from that address. So until next time, thanks for being with us. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>